You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is the Artist Profile Series, Episode 22. Andrew Warhalla was born August 6, 1928, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. His parents were working-class immigrants from what is now modern-day Slovakia. His father was a coal miner who died when Andrew was only 13 years old. His family upbringing was steeped in a deep-rooted Catholicism, which, as you'll see, had more of an impact on Andy's life and art than what is often recognized. The world remembers Andrew as the 1960s pop artist and cultural icon Andy Warhol. Warhol started his career as a commercial artist, working as a successful illustrator for magazines and advertising agencies, but eventually made the leap to become an independent exhibiting artist in New York City. Andy's unique style of portraying screen-printed images of his lifelong obsession with celebrities and mundane objects propelled him into the spotlight as a leading voice of the pop art movement. If you aren't familiar with this term, pop art is an art movement that emerged in the 1950s and 60s and drew inspiration from images of mass media and popular culture. Pop artists often used irony, parody, and cultural critique as a means of dismantling the highbrowed attitude of high art. Critics of the pop art movement would argue that the banal subject matter of its images stripped art of its beauty, integrity, and meaning. However, artists like Andy Warhol saw just the opposite. Andy found beauty and meaning within the mundane, all the while critiquing the society that produced the images he used. He said, I just paint things I always thought were beautiful, things you use every day and never think about. Warhol's most recognized contributions to the pop art movement would include his screen prints of Marilyn Monroe and his series of 32 Campbell soup can images. Andy's art confounded viewers who couldn't reconcile how reproducing images of commercial products such as Brillo pads and Coke bottles could be considered art. But I would like to suggest that wonder is often found hiding within the mundane, yet only those willing to search it out will receive its gift. And if you'll allow me to wax spiritual for just a moment, is this not reflective of the gospel itself, which gives us the creator of the universe lying in a feeding trough for animals? Perhaps a second glance would do us well to find something sublime even in soup cans and everyday images. Andy Warhol's public lifestyle was marked as one of decadence, excess, and drug use. His New York City art studio, known as The Factory, was host to many outlandish parties and became the makeshift dwelling for filmmakers, aspiring artists, musicians, heroin addicts, and drag queens. But what isn't widely recognized about Andy's life was his secretive and apparent devotion to the Catholic faith. Underneath his silver wigs and flamboyant costumes was a man who regularly attended mass, served at homeless shelters, and financed his nephew's study for the priesthood. 
how these two irreconcilable personas found home in this one man's life is a question both interested religious figures and art critics alike have been asking. It would seem Andy had taken Jesus up on his words, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. It wasn't until after Andy's death, when his hidden spiritual side was revealed beyond the scope of a few of his closest companions. Andy's friend and art historian John Richardson gave the eulogy at his funeral and told the gathered crowd he wanted to recall a side of Warhol's character that he hid from all but his closest friends, his spiritual side. Richardson went on to say, Those of you who knew him in circumstances that were the antithesis of spiritual may be surprised that such a side existed. But exist it did, and it's key to the artist's psyche. Although Andy was perceived, with some justice, as a passive observer who never imposed his beliefs on other people, he could on occasion be an effective proselytizer. To my certain knowledge, Richardson said, he was responsible for at least one conversion. Another of Warhol's colleagues, Bob Colasello, tells the story in Jane Dillenberger's book, The Religious Art of Andy Warhol, of how they had attended Mass while visiting the shrine of the Virgin of Guadalupe and was convinced that Andy's faith was not an act. The posthumous publication of Warhol's diaries confirm in his own words that this complex and eccentric artist did in fact hold a deep-rooted faith despite his overt fascinations with glamour, celebrity lifestyle, sexual lewdness, and wild parties. Contrary to the characteristic blankness of his interviews, which denied any affiliation with religious belief, the pages of his diaries make frequent reference to his religious practices, including daily prayer, attending Mass, and of his nervous and exhilarating experience of meeting Pope John Paul II. Some accounts of Andy's life tell us he lived as a celibate, kept a crucifix and prayer book beside his bed, wore a cross necklace beneath his shirt, and carried a rosary in his pocket. Could it be, perhaps, there was a distinction to be made between the public persona of Andy Warhol and the private devotion of Andrew Warhol? There's no doubt that Andy enjoyed taking on characteristics that confounded the public eye and shocked those around him. But can we truly know what lies at the core of a person's innermost being? Considering this distinction between Andy's public and private life is not an attempt to justify immorality or to canonize or Christianize a figure who wouldn't have self-identified as such. But it is to say, perhaps, we are all too quick to judge what is or isn't motivated by faith in the same way that we've been too quick to judge what is or is not art. Toward the latter half of Andy's life, at the height of his fame, an incident occurred that gave this glamorous New York City icon pause and drew him to reflect on his own mortality. One of the many aspiring artists who frequented the factory and looked to Andy for creative guidance was a woman named Valerie Solanas. Solanas was a radical feminist and playwright whom Andy had hired to act in one of his films. 
She was disgruntled because Andy had not taken her play and made it into a film, and she was paranoid that Andy was conspiring to steal her work and felt he was controlling too much of her life. And so one day, she showed up to the factory with a gun and shot Andy twice in the stomach, along with London art gallery owner Mario Amaya. The wound was not fatal, though Andy spent two months in the hospital recovering. At one point, the doctors declared him dead, but fortunately, if not miraculously, they were able to revive him. The experience shook Andy to his core, and afterward he became more and more reclusive in his already private life. His art began to depict images of death, skulls, and symbols of mortality. As he progressed toward the final years of his life, Andy's work began to show an obsession with images of Jesus and other religious symbols. And what's fascinating is that Andy Warhol's final exhibition before his death was a show in Milan displaying his reproduction of Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper. Andy's last exhibition during his lifetime highlighted Christ's final meal with his friends. And this exhibit closed only a few days before his death. So what is our takeaway from this glimpse into the life of such a complex and public artist and icon? When I think of Andy Warhol's life and of his art, I'm reminded that we are each and all collages like his art, screen prints and illustrations with some parts reproductions, other parts original, some parts products of our culture and our upbringing, other parts made up of desires and dreams and fears, a repetitious blend of boring and banal, wonderful and sublime, beautiful and ugly, born of tragedies, obsessions and heartbreaks. We are all collages of hidden wonders and hidden vices, with hidden pieties and blaring flaws. I am reminded that just like in Andy's life, in the end there is a table set before us, a table that welcomes us to come, a table full of friends and enemies alike, a table for the faithful and the faithless, for the betrothed and the betrayed. There is a table where the great artist himself, dressed in the humility of human flesh, welcomes us, washes us, breaks the bread and pours the wine for us, and asks no questions of who is worthy and who is not. Music for this episode is provided with permission by Apache Tomcat. We'll be back next week with our next full interview episode.